On today's Truth Factor discussion, we're going to continue our study in Acts chapter 19. We'll pick up with verse 11. We'd like to thank you for, thank you so much for joining our study today. We hope that the things that we consider from the book of Acts that you'll find beneficial and helpful as well. If you'd like to study, if you'd like to participate in today's study, I'll pass it over to Paul and he will share that information with you. Certainly, John, if you'd like to, uh, interact with us, I suppose, would be the best way to say that. I think my personal experience has been the easiest way is just to find our Truth Factor Live discussion on YouTube, and it's youtube.com slash truthfactorlive. But you can also take a look at our Facebook page at facebook.com slash truthfactorlive, and the video is live there, and you can comment on the video uh, in real time there as well. Also at truthfactor.com. You can look at the live viewing page and that has a chat feature integrated into that. You may want to email us at some point in time if you had some question from something that's been taught in this program or just uh, wanted to connect with us. And if you want to connect with all of us, just send your question to questions at truthfactor.com. That's questions at truthfactor.com. We each have individual emails through Truth Factor. Uh, Paul, John, Brian, Tom, uh, at truthfactor.com. You just pick the one that you want. Uh, also, if you are using social media, especially on YouTube, uh, if you click the notification bell, it will let you know when we are live, and that way you can just jump right on and you can engage with us that way. We look forward to your comments. We'll try to introduce those in a timely manner today and appreciate you watching uh, so that we can uh, study together from the Word of God. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. Well, let's go ahead and jump into today's study. And Tom, I'll pass it over here to you and you can review if you'd like or just take us right into today's study. Tom, are you muted? I can read his lips, though. So Okay, sorry Tom, about that. That was so I, I, anticlimactic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so we're studying Acts chapter 19, and we find Paul is in Ephesus. He's on his third preaching tour, or, or however you want to describe that. Last week, we began dealing with some of why he, while he was in Ephesus, and we dealt with these converts, uh, uh, Apollos being straightened out while by Aquila and Priscilla, and then after that, we talked about these individuals that had been baptized with the baptism of John and how they were baptized in the name of Christ and so on. And now we find that Paul is going to be in Jerusalem or in Ephesus. And actually we, we learn that he's there for at least three years in Acts chapter 20. And in the midst of that, he spends a great deal of time and many things happen. And that kind of leads us to where we are at in verse number 11 of chapter 19. And we have a few events that we want to read about that are in place as the gospel is being preached all throughout the region of Asia while Paul uses Ephesus, maybe if you want to describe it as his home base and so on. So anyways, in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, let's see if I could get, uh, uh, Brian, can I get you to read through verse number 20? Absolutely. Uh, Tom, we're reading today Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20. Reading in the New King James Version. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. Thank you so very much. The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Yeah. 
Okay, thank, thank you there, Brian, for reading that. So we have a couple of interesting things happening here. And before we do that, we have a chat room question like usual. And John, do you have that ready? Yes, go right ahead. Okay, the, our chat room question is this. In verse number 18, how is the word believed concerning this particular section? And, and what is included in that term believed? Okay, so that's the chat room question. We'll get back to that after the conclusion of this. So we, we basically have a couple of interesting things happening here. And, I, and if I were to summarize this section, it would be the fact that God is doing great works in this particular city as Paul is preaching the gospel and so on. And in other words, the gospel that is being preached is being confirmed. Uh, uh, you, know, you know, bear in mind, just, just be reminded they didn't have the completed versions. Uh, at this time, they, they probably didn't have very many books, if any at all, uh, of the New Testament in letters. Uh, so, so we were still dealing with word of mouth and verification. Now, it makes the point in verse number 11 that, uh, that Paul was doing unusual miracles, or, or God was working through Paul doing unusual miracles. And uh, how effective were these works of Paul? Any thoughts? Paul, did you want to say something? Or? Um, Brian? Oh, uh, so I was going to say, you know, um, uh, it, it, it talks about how effective they are. I think kind of to answer your question, verse 12, that they were so extraordinary that they were even indirectly being accomplished. That it says that there were, uh, the New King James says, handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick. And that sounds a lot like uh, we might consider back in Acts 5 and verse 15, how it was that Peter's shadow was accomplishing things that the uh, that the, the miracles being accomplished were so extraordinary that they were being done indirectly. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's what you have taken place. And, and so obviously there's just extraordinary things happening. I mean, it's kind of interesting. And I suspect that this is the verse that... Um, I'll use the term modern day charlatans will use as an excuse to, to tell you to send them money or send some kind of a request to them and they'll send you a, a piece of cloth that they've paid over or some kind of oil or something like that. And supposedly it's going to have miraculous powers and so on. Uh, but that's a little bit different than Paul because it, it's interesting in verse 11 associated with this, we cannot forget it says God was the one that worked the unusual miracles through the hands of Paul. So I, I, do you all see any ideas in that expression? You know, the, making that point about God. I don't know that I see. I, I don't know. Uh, like I said, uh, unusual. Of course, the hard thing about a miracle is any miracle is by its definition unusual. So I, I you know, I, Tom, I'm admit I don't. I hadn't really thought too much about, uh, caught the significance of what would make a miracle unusual in that sense. Yeah. Well, well, uh, if I use the word uh, other, well, the the point that was being made here, I I think is, Paul, is making sure that they understand it's not him that's doing it. I uh, that's one of the things, and I believe that the reason why, it says what it says, and this is just my speculation and so on. Is the nature of Ephesus as a as a idolatrous city because of what was going on in this city? We know from this text that witchcraft was being practiced, which means that there were people that were doing things supposedly in the names of gods and so on. And then you read about this great temple to the goddess Diana. So, if you will, God is working in an extraordinary way, maybe even above and beyond what was done in many other cities just to establish he is God and establish the message that Paul is preaching. So that's kind of what comes to my mind as I see that. Any other thoughts on that? Or does that make sense? So, yeah. And if not, uh, if not, uh, we just find many things happening. One observation in verse 12, it makes the points that as these, as even people were bringing the aprons and so on, it says that diseases left them and evil spirits went out of them. 
there are some who today who teach that you got an illness, it is an evil spirit working in you. This phrase makes a distinction between those two things. So just because you're sick, it doesn't necessarily mean there's an evil spirit there. Uh, and, and of course, that would go to those who are modern day miracles and so on, which I don't believe the Bible teaches. So anyway, so we have that taking place. And, and then after that, these miracles are so extraordinary that it makes the point in verse number 13 that there were some, and the New King James uses the expression, itinerant Jewish exorcists. Do you have any ideas of what that is talking about? Any thoughts? One, uh, one of the things that, uh, that I came across as I was looking at this is the idea of the word itinerant is somebody that's moving from place to place. So it very well could be that these were individuals that were, for lack of a better term, frauds. And maybe they went from place to place making their living through supposed supernatural means. Uh, maybe even in the uh, being a being, it, it says that they were Jews, which means that they would probably appeal to the Jew, Jewish audience in those places. And they, uh, I, I see them very much like uh, going again back to Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter eight, where where Peter goes to uh, to a uh, uh, Samaria, and and of course you have Simon the magician there, and it, it talked about the works that he deceived people with. I think this is the same type of an idea. But they see in this city how Paul is able to speak and demons would leave people. And here's an opportunity for them. And so they try the same thing. And the way they do it, you know, uh, we command, they go to a demon-possessed individual, and we command you in the name of the God who Paul is preaching, or the name of Jesus who Paul is preaching, come out of him. And of course, what's the response of the demon? <laughs> it's, it's Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? <laughs> exactly. And what does he proceed to do? The demon, that is. The demon-possessed man, what does he proceed to do? Yeah, he overpowers them and prevails against them, and they fled out of that house naked and wounded, so it, it, the demon attacks, so to speak. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And basically, in so doing, he exposes their powerlessness. That's one of the things that happens there. But in doing this, it would, uh, I think it would also get, give attention to and lend validity to what Paul was doing and the message that he was teaching. You know, by the fact that you have the charlatans being exposed and unable to do something, but Paul could do it. And, and this demon even identifies that. I know Jesus. I know Paul, but who are you? And you he know, teaches them a lesson. Tom, it's kind of interesting in, uh, I think, uh, at least the New American Standard kind of makes a distinction. There's two different words for know here, uh, implying the idea that we we really know Jesus. You know, that, that the first word there in Greek implies the idea that they have an absolute knowledge of Jesus. And then they say we have a familiarity with Paul. I kind of think it's neat that those words are used like that because it, it's implying that the demons say, we basically their respect for Paul is because of their respect for Jesus, not so much yeah. that Paul is as powerful as Jesus in their mind. They don't know Paul like they know Jesus. They know Jesus. They're familiar with Paul. Um, yeah. I, I also think what's interesting about this is that when he says we don't know you, you know, we're told by Jesus many times that the worst thing you can ever be told on the day of judgment is that Jesus says, depart from me. I don't know you. Uh, I think it's interesting that the demons might say the same thing, that they might say, oh, we don't know who you are either. You know, this idea of a of an absence of, of recognition is kind of an interesting, uh, yeah. interesting point in considering it's those things, too. Yeah. And, and what that demonstrates is anyone with whom Jesus is not has no authority. You know, and, and, and that, that's really what you have. There. So that, that's a that's a great observation to make. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? So, so, so we have this taking place here, and of course, these these Jewish exorcists are are taught a lesson. We'll just leave it at that. Overpowered and taught a lesson. What was the result of it? And again, I know we're going to get back to our question, our, our thought question. But what was the result of it in verse eighteen? 
many of the individuals who saw this and heard about it, they believed, and they came forward confessing their deeds and being convicted. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And and so that's what you have taking place here. Uh, and so how do we know that Ephesus was the city that had a lot of incantations and and witchcraft type stuff? What do we find in verse 19? They had a book burning. They had a book burning. Exactly. They had a book burning. And, and uh, you know, uh, those who practice magic, uh, they brought their books and they burned them and they did it in the sight of all, which yeah. is a sign of repentance, which is a sign of acknowledging, acknowledging a rejection of whatever witchcraft, sorcery, uh, homage to idolatry, including Diana, that they would have formally done. I see all of that in this. And it's kind of interesting when it talks about the book, the, the value of the books, it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. And, and that would be a lot of money. Uh, one source that I looked up described, you know, pieces of silver could have different values depending on where you were at. But I, I think they said one of the more common uses of it was that a piece of silver would have been an average day's wage. I think they called it the, the drachma or something like that. And so it would have been a small, it would have been a small coin and it was what you earned in a day. So if you think about that 50,000 days worth of work, that's pretty impressive. Hey, Tom. You know, as to an amount, yes. I had that information. Uh, I've just brought it up on the screen. That is from the um, ESV Study Bible, and it says what you were talking about there—that the Greek drachma, which represented a laborer's average daily wage—and they go on to say that at a fifteen U.S. dollars per hour or one hundred twenty dollars per day, fifty thousand drachmas would equal approximately six million in today's currency. Yeah, exactly, and 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 that, I think that number is there for a number of reasons. It's impressive. Bear in mind, they didn't have printing presses back then. You know, you, you couldn't, you couldn't go to the, the local Roman Walmart and, and, and buy a, a, a ream of parchments, you know, for five <laughs> bucks. <laughs> I mean, a parchment was valuable. Plus the information that would have been associated on these things, you know, the, uh, um, for those who were into witchcraft and, uh, and those types of things, understanding these spells, it would have been very, very valuable material. So, you know, Tom, what you said there kind of makes me think it's kind of odd. You know, in, in ancient times, you usually recycled uh, paper yes. like that. And so, you know, to burn it was really weird. Uh, you know, I nearly hadn't thought about that, Tom, but what you said there spurred that thought that, you know, you could have said, well, I'm going to erase this paper and throw it out. But I can't help but to wonder if because in you know and, and the word witchcraft here the word magic here is is a kind of a weird word I wish I could study it some more because it's not it's not the word I thought it would be uh, the normal pharmacaeus witchcraft yeah. word um, it implies maybe something a little more like superstition or things like that but uh, it's interesting because like I said maybe they maybe they thought well if this paper can be construed to have power uh, and I'm kind of stretching this. Maybe it'd be a yeah. stumbling block if we were to sell the paper just for somebody else. You know, and you might think that. You might think, well, I'm going to get rid of these things, so I'm going to sell them. But they decided, no, we're not going to let anybody have this. We're going to destroy it. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and that's a good point. One of the things that I've learned, and we'll just wrap this up and then get moving, but one of the things I've learned in, in my studies about uh, manuscripts is we have the technology now that one of the things one of the things they're able to do is actually determine in many instances what was erased uh, and written over because like you said they would recycle the paper and and we're finding manuscripts of portions of the bible that were written over with something else you know maybe common documents but with x-ray and various things like that you get another document with which you can uh, where you can find a, a, a manuscript of a part of the new testament so i mean so it was very very valuable stuff and it is remarkable that they would burn the books it also shows us that 
following Christ sometimes will demand a sacrifice. Right. Uh, well, it always demands a sacrifice, but here was something they were willing to sacrifice, uh, right. even uh, something of great value so that they could be followers of Jesus. Right, yeah. And, you know, maybe a modern-day uh, illustration. Suppose that somebody obeys the gospel and so on, and in their conviction they look at their movie collection and they realize there's some movies that shouldn't be there, you know, R-rated movies and and other things that they, they know. You know, these things contain profanity and uh, other things that are ungodly and so on. Uh, so I'm going to go on eBay and I'm going to sell these. <laughs> That's not what you do. You, you you destroy them because those are the types of things that you don't want to give to somebody else. So you would destroy them. And, and that's what you could see in this. So anyways, any other thoughts before we get ready to move on? Uh, okay, so uh, uh, let's go to our chat question. Do we have any answers to that? It, let's see. Yes. Looks like Shelton presented an answer. Let me bring that up for you. Okay. Shelton said, They believed the miracles being done were done by the power of God. There was a difference in their magic and the miracles of God. Included in their belief is a confession of their deeds. Absolutely, and, and and that's certainly a great point of of things that were associated with the idea of believing here. Any other ideas that you all have that come to mind in this? You know, I, I'm thinking of the way belief is used in a denominational sense. Well, uh, now, I guess, I guess, are you talking about the fact that? Um, the word believe can be a conclusive word, inclusive word. Not just the idea of mental acknowledgement. It can mean the idea of you do what you're supposed to do. Quite often in scriptures, the words faith and believe, sometimes they're talking about one's personal belief, one's personal faith, but at other times the word is used to describe everything associated with believing. Because you believe, you do what you're told to do. Okay. And so, uh, in, in other words, this isn't a passage that mentions by name that they were baptized. But, no, but it doesn't mean they weren't. Okay. But at the same time, though, um, when you look at the Greek word translated as, as the, the word believed, it is part of the, the, the peace to family, which yes. would be, in this case, past tense, you know, action and everything. And when you go back to the, um, when you go back, one of the definitions of faith or belief, okay, be the, be the same thing in, in principle. It is that conviction and that persuasion. So yeah. these people saw it and, and they believed they had faith. They were convicted. They were persuaded. Um, many times, like what you were pointing out, I think there are individuals today who say they believe. But there's not the conviction and the persuasion there to move them to act upon that. It, it becomes an academic acknowledgement of something, not a life-changing conviction. And these people had that life-changing conviction. Yeah, exactly. I, I always, when I define what faith is, as I say, two things come to mind. Number one, it means you trust. And number two, it means you believe God. And the point that I'm making there is it's not merely believing in God. And by the way, Shelton did give a second comment down there where, where he made the point that their belief led them to a conviction to acknowledge their past sinful actions. Yes. So, so, so you've got, and, and that's associated with the idea of what we're talking about here. And, and I just wanted to bring that out in this text. So does anybody have any other thoughts? Good observations here. So as a result of this, the word of the Lord uh, grew and it mightily and it prevailed. And so Paul had success in the city because of these things. However, where there is success, there's often concerns by those who are affected uh, adversely by the success. So that brings us to verse number 21. 
And uh, if I could, Paul, could I get you to read verses 21 through 31? You sure can. Acts 19, 21 through 31. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through. Excuse me. Let me start that again. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods, which are made with hands. So, not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the temple, uh, go into the people, excuse me, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. And okay. they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. Okay, thank, th thank you, Paul, for reading all that. So, so here we find in this text... Uh, that there are some who are concerned about the success that Paul is having. People are renouncing witchcraft. Obviously, people are announcing idolatry, and that would include Diana uh, in, in many instances. So the chat room question for this particular section, and this goes to verse number 26, where Demetrius is speaking to his fellow tradesmen and people in the city, and he makes, he makes the point there, uh, you, you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but throughout Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. And my question is, was the accusation of Demetrius against Paul in verse 26 an accurate accusation? And so so we'll talk about that in, in, in a few moments and maybe discuss a little bit. But getting back to the beginning of this text... We find that Paul is continuing in Ephesus, and it says here that he purposed in the spirit that he was going to basically go to Jerusalem, but he was going to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, uh, and his ultimate goal was to see Rome. And a question that I kind of have for the panel and whoever wants to talk about it is, uh, 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 as we look at other letters that Paul wrote, what was one of the reasons you suppose that he might have been wanting to go through Macedonia and Achaia on his way to Jerusalem? Or does anybody have any ideas? Well, My first thought would be probably just to visit the congregations that he had uh, worked with there before. Yeah. yeah. And he was going to visit the congregations, but what was another thing that he was going to do as he visited with them? Was it to take up a collection? Yes. Yeah. To re and that becomes one of the purposes associated with this third journey that Paul right. is engaged in. And and you read about, I mean, Second Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 gives kind of a detailed explanation of this letter that Paul has written to the Corinthians, probably 1 Corinthians, in chapter 16, verses 1 through 3 there, where he explains that he's going to be doing this. 
Uh, and you also have Romans chapter 15, where in verses 22 through 26, Paul writing to the Romans hopes to see them, but he needs to go to Jerusalem first. So we know that he's going to be receiving funds to take and help needy brethren in Jerusalem. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons why instead of going from Ephesus back to Jerusalem, he's going to take some time to pass through uh, Macedonia, Achaia, and so on. And uh, uh, so I, I see that as one of the reasons that this has taken place. And, and any, any other thoughts on that? And uh, I think one of the things that we've pointed out is uh, as Paul is on these journeys, he has this entourage that is with him, and it's an ever-changing entourage. He has individuals that he will send to take care of things, to prepare people, places he's going. He will send letters. It's kind of interesting. It, it talks about he sends into Macedonia two individuals that ministered with him in verse 22, and they and their names, Timothy and Erastus. Uh, one commentary that I noted as I was looking at this kind of makes the point that uh, Timothy and Erastus go up into Macedonia. And, and what churches are in Macedonia? You're going to have Corinth? No, um, no uh, Macedonia. Philippi? Uh, up northward. Yeah, yeah. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. All of those are up there in Macedonia. And in the meantime, if you go over to 1 Corinthians, you read in 1 Corinthians that Paul says, I'm hoping to send Timothy to you. So it's very possible that while Paul is in Ephesus, he sends Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia because that's probably the way he plans to travel and eventually make his way to Corinth. But he probably sends somehow a courier or something, a letter to Corinth, maybe 1 Corinthians, in which at least twice he says, uh, Timothy's on his way. Or, or I'm sending Timothy to you, and uh, uh, it's kind of just kind of interesting to notice these types of things taking place on his journey. Uh, and, and he's making plans. He's making plans to move on beyond beyond Ephesus. But in the meantime, we have this commotion that arises in the city, and then we read about Demetrius. He's a silversmith. Uh, we don't know a whole lot about him. Uh, but uh, we find that Demetrius is this silversmith making silver shrines to the goddess Diana. And does anybody have any thoughts on who Diana is? Well, we know a little more maybe, uh, well, we know quite a bit about Diana, Artemis. Uh, we know quite a bit also about that temple, too. One of the strange things about pagan gods is they kind of got shared across different places. So... What what was to the to the Greeks uh, Artemis to the Romans Diana if I get that right my daughter is really specific on that she'll always yeah, mix them up yeah yeah she always uh, gets me if I mess them up uh, probably might have been Astarte or Ashtoreth to the you know to the to the Israelites back in the Middle East because a lot of these gods were just basically amalgamations taken from other places so yeah. uh, that might be one thing to consider about this this temple is considered is it not one of the seven wonders of the world. Yeah, ancient. Uh, yeah, yeah. It has it has a real the interesting history. Um, a meteorite landed there back uh, centuries and centuries before the time of Alexander the Great. A temple had been built and destroyed and rebuilt again. So this was uh, this was the big thing in Ephesus, and this was you know really you might say this is why everybody if you came to Ephesus this is what you came for you came to see this monument. Yeah, this is a tourist attraction. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This is the tourist yeah, direction, yeah. Yeah, and a tourist, and of course, because it's associated with the deity, uh, the way we would describe what Demetrius is doing is Demetrius is selling souvenirs. Right, right. Uh, you and know, he represents you know, all the people that sell the souvenirs, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And his happens to be silver, you know, uh, which, uh, which they actually say that they have found uh, terracotta idols you know, miniature replicas, but they haven't found silver ones, which likely has something to do with the value of silver. And when a raider would come through, the silver was more valuable than what it was designed of, you know, those kind of things. But but whatever the case, I mean, he, he made money. You know, he made money from the uh, all these tourists or whatever you want to call them 
that were coming through, uh, through Ephesus. And he sees if Paul keeps teaching that there's only one God, and uh, shall we say Diana ain't it, uh, uh, that their trade is in, in danger. Now, now, one thing I want to observe about the statements that he makes here is he exaggerates. You know, th- th- this is an example of, of a faulty use of logic. Uh, he exaggerates as to what's probably going to happen. He, he sees the worst case scenario, and that's the picture that he paints uh, of this. But what he's doing is he ends up working up the crowd uh, because of this danger. And where he begins is with his tradesmen, and that bleeds over to the people of the city. So uh, any thoughts on the idea of, of this text or him working up the crowds? Because that's definitely what happens as we read about on this particular occasion. And so the crowds get worked up, and of course, all of a sudden they hear that the uh, the temple of the great goddess uh, uh, Diana is in danger. And of course, people are worked up about that. And uh, did they really know what they were up to? Did they really know what they were doing? You know. Not really, right? I mean, uh, 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 there was a lot of confusion that was taking place here, as we read about in verse 29. And uh, uh, then they rush into the theater. And as I understand, this was a theater that could seat about almost 25,000 people. And that would have been pretty impressive back then, you know, (laughs) as far as that goes. And uh, a near riot is taking place. They seize a couple of individuals, a couple of Paul's travel companions. Uh, Gaius and Aristarchus in verse thir- uh, tw- 29. Uh, Paul wants to go out and talk to the people, but he's not allowed to, or his friends talk him out of it. And, and I think there's an interesting lesson in that as well. You know, uh, why would they not allow Paul to speak to the people? You know what's so interesting about that, Tom, is that uh, I can I can see Paul's perspective, and he's thinking... Wow, this is like the biggest audience I've ever got to preach to, you know. And uh, I, I, I can just hear Paul uh, thinking about how, wow, I can, I can have the message of the gospel all at once. But, but maybe Paul is just not really understanding that the situation is these are people there to listen. They're, they're people there to destroy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and I think there's a little bit of a lesson for us in that is. There is wisdom in at times saying nothing. You know, you know, and I'm talking about even in presenting the gospel. You know, if you're trying to share the gospel with others, there are times where it's just not the wise thing to say. It, in other words, it's going to do more damage than good. Now, I, I believe that's probably more the exception than the rule, but we just need to be aware of that, that there are some circumstances where this isn't the time to deal with this. Does that kind of make sense? And, and, and not that you're veering away from presenting the gospel or any, or using it as an excuse, but, but it's just, it's just a fact that there are times where those things are not appropriate. And, and, uh, and so Paul's friends are, are, are saying, you know, you need to go out there. You're going to make matters worse rather than making them better. And uh, these might have been individuals that knew the officials. Uh, well, well, they were officials of Asia, and they knew that the leaders of the city were trying to take care of this. So it was kind of Paul, let this get taken care of. You know, you know, let let, a, uh, let us or, or or you know let the magistrates take care of this. And we're going to read about what they do in a minute. But nevertheless, we find that Alexander, one of the multitude, he's a Jew. He comes forward. I don't know if Alexander was a Christian or whether he was a Jew Jew, uh, an anti-Jesus Jew. Uh, but probably many of the Ephesians didn't make much distinction because both of them would have been monotheistic. And so when he starts speaking, you have this big argument that takes place for uh, uh, this near riot that takes place here. And actually that gets into the uh, the next part of the reading that we haven't read yet. So, um, is there any other thoughts on what we've read up to this point? 
you know, you one know, of the things that I've always found really interesting in the story is Paul's friends, the ACRs. Um, but depending on what uh, kind of translation you have of the Bible, some say uh, New King James, officials of Asia, um, chief of Asia is another translation. You know, there's different ways of describing this term. But the word ACR refers to people who had a specific office, and their office was the work of making sure uh, that the official state religions were being handled. Um, it's about as pagan a job as you can have, in fact. That's what's really unusual about this. And and what I think is so weird is that is that these are kind of like the chief pagans of the area, and it says they're friends of Paul. Um, yeah. I don't know how much I want to make of this, other than to say, uh, at the very minimum, there's there's some really neat suggestion here about the kind of friends Paul might make that maybe they weren't believers. You know, that uh, in fact, like I said, again, my... Some of my supposition is I don't know how they could have been believers, but but that Paul might have been friendly even with people that had no uh, sense of conversion with him. We oftentimes question the idea of of having friends in the world and are Christians authorized to have friends that aren't Christians, and we 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 generally just kind of assume that's true. But but here might be an example of Paul having a, a friendly relationship with people that don't seem to be at all to have been Christians. So well, I just think it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, or it could be re recent converts, but 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 uh, th that is a good observation that you make there, Brian. And one of the things that that I I, I see, you know, in, in the point that you're making there is, as you go through the Book of Acts, notice how Christians were not going around trying to cause trouble. You know, uh, they were not the ones that started this riot, and we're going to find that out here in a minute. They didn't go into cities trying to be troublemakers. All they did was try to preach the gospel. And, and as we're going to see here in a minute, there's a difference in there's a difference in trying to destroy a property or start a riot and engage in an intellectual discussion about religion. You know, because even the city authorities realize what Paul's not doing. They they made the point that he wasn't blaspheming against Diana. So, so uh, uh, you know, it's kind of so. I think it was just uh, he, they were engaging in uh, intellectual discussions, which would have been a part of this area and so on. And uh, and it was recognized that that's all this is. It's not trying to destroy you from from a physical standpoint. Now, if everybody was converted, so be it. Great, but that's not what's happening. So uh, anyways, uh, uh, we, we need to really move on. Let's get to our chat question here. Do you have that ready? And uh, uh, any uh, responses that we have to that? Yes. Would you like go ahead and reread the chat question? Yes. Yeah, the chat room question is, what was the accusation of Demetrius against Paul in verse 26 accurate? All right. Here is Gregor's answer. <clears throat> yes. And they admitted by implication that their own gods were made with hands. So the union boss knows what he is doing is nothing really. The God of Christ is eternal and not handcrafted. There you go. And that's a great answer. And that kind of ties to what's happening. here. The accusations are true. But like I made a point a few minutes ago, uh, there's exaggeration in what they're saying. You know, they're, they're, they're going well beyond what Paul is actually doing. All he's doing is preaching the truth. Now, he is teaching that there is only one God and so on, and it's not the gods that are made with hands. But he's trying to get people to accept that. And that's really the point. And, and I suspect that Paul even realizes that not everybody is going to accept these things. And if you choose not to accept them, well, you know, that's between you and God. And, and I'll let God take care of that judging that uh, all I'm going to do is try to preach the gospel. And if you don't want to hear it, I'll just move to somebody that will. So, so good. Any other thoughts that came up to that? Nope. That was the last one. All right. Well then let's go ahead and get to this last section so that we can get this finished up here. Paul or John, if I could get you to go ahead and read, uh, you know, somewhere around verse uh, 33, 34 and go to the end of the chapter. All right. Let's see. All right, let's start there with, I'm going to start right at 30, 32. Okay. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. 
And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. Now Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple, guardian of the great goddess Diana, and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here, who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Okay, thank you. So so here we have a... Here we have the conclusion and the chat room question that I have for this section is what is significant about the term assembly as it is found in this text? And it's found three times, verses 32, 39, and 41. So that is our chat room question. What is the significance of the term assembly as it is found here? So uh, we'll get to that in just a few, uh, just a couple of moments as we wrap this up. We only have a few minutes left. So we'll just kind of briefly go through this text. This is actually a, it's actually a telling of an account and it's pretty self-explanatory, the things that take place here. But we find the reaction of the crowd is one of confusion. Um, they don't know what they're doing. You know, the multitudes, one, one group is saying one thing, one group is saying something else, uh, which we read about in other instances. There was a little bit of that associated with Jesus as as his trial was taking place and so on. But here we find out that uh, uh, when, when they found out that this Alexander is, is a Jew uh, and he wants to speak to the people, it says for, for two hours, they're sitting there muttering, great is the great is Diana of the Ephesians. And, uh, and, and it's a near riot. So the city clerk decides or, or tries to quiet the crowd. Alexander couldn't do it, but the city clerk could. And it's kind of interesting. It probably took the city clerk a while to quiet the crowd, but he actually gets it done. Uh, and what is the, a summary of what the city clerk tells these people? Anybody? Any ideas on that or any thoughts? It's kind of similar to the reasoning of Gideon's father. If you remember where Gideon, um, where you know they, they tore down the temples, and Gideon's fathers basically said, you know, let Baal defend himself. Yeah. You know, and that is kind of like that. Uh, basically, his point is, you know, they've not done anything wrong against Diana. They've not spoken out against them. Um, you know, every, everything that is going on here, there's nothing wrong with what they said. If Demetrius has a problem with them, use the courts. Go through the proper channels. If you keep this rioting going, then you're going to find, we're going to find ourselves standing opposed to the Roman government, and they're going to come down and squash what would appear to be a rebellion. And that yeah. seems to be the reasoning he uses. Yeah, exactly. And I suspect that if a city continually was caught up in rioting and so on, that Rome would not look too favorably on that. You know, I, I don't know how many strikes a city would get, but, uh, but the point is, is you don't want that to happen. We have favor with Rome. Let's not lose that favor. Uh, and, 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 and again, I think it is interesting that you have there in, uh, in, in that verse that, uh, they're not robbers of temples, which means they're not in there causing trouble. Or, or going in there and breaking property or stealing things and stuff like that. And, and he even says they're not blasphemers of your goddess. And, and what I think by that is, uh, they're not dis, the language is not disrespectful. And I think there's a lesson for that in us as we're dealing with people that are opposed to God. You know, say you're dealing with an evolutionist, an atheist, or, or you're dealing with a Muslim or, or, or even somebody in a denomination. Pick your words carefully. You don't have to be hateful as you are engaging discussion with them, because hateful language very rarely accomplishes anything good. 
And it, and it usually, that's usually what leads to quote unquote riots, you know, as far as that goes. So, so that's what we have as the message that is being taught here. And he basically says, you know what? There, there's courts. If, if they've done something wrong, build your case, sue, you know, sue them and take them to court, get it dealt with, get it dealt with in a legal way. That's what the courts are here for. And after the crowd, they realize the truth of that statement and he dismisses them and he dismisses the assembly. Are there any other thoughts that anybody has on these, on these verses? Tom, I have one more thought, kind of a different one. One of the things that we might consider that a that a book or a letter like the book of Acts accomplishes is it becomes something that Christians might carry around with them. Um, and they might not just use it as a matter of the persuading people of the gospel, but it might actually be a bit of a form of self-defense. What I've often wondered about the way Luke words this, it's very unusual that Luke goes to the detail of specifically explaining how a city clerk, not a Christian, not a believer, quells this riot. And I think that the significance could be, and, and I'm just kind of adding some thoughts to this, that a lot, of, a lot of times in the first century, we have some historical record that Christians were accused of causing uh, riot and commotion and, uh, tumult and, and uh, commotion and all these different things. And you could actually pull out something like Acts and say, no, wait a second. Did you know that the city that that when the riot occurred in Ephesus, it wasn't the Christians that were responsible? And you can actually go to the city clerk of Ephesus and confirm that. And I often wonder. Now we know that uh, the city treasurer of Ephesus was a Christian. We actually have uh, that from the letter to the Romans, uh, an interesting little tidbit of that. But it but it might be something that you might be able to say if somebody brought you up on trial and says you're part of Christians, and that's a that's you know the word later the word cult or sect gets thrown out that that's a sect of people that just cause riot, you could actually say, no, wait a second, I've got actually a, a document that explains that, for example, when the riots occurred in Ephesus, Christians were not the cause of it, and you can actually go to the city clerk. I know that's kind of a stretch of thought, but I do think that maybe Paul, including that, it becomes a way for somebody, again, to make a take a testimony and say, you can research this, you could find this out and find the innocence of Christians in this matter. Yeah, yeah, and, and and that's a great point, Brian. I I uh, have been teaching, a, starting a class on apologetics, and I've been dealing with reasoning and so on in the Bible using apologetics. And one of the sources I use, I'm going to uh, hold this up here. This is a book by Doy Moyer that is called Mind Your Faith, Essays in Apologetics. And he has a couple of chapters in there. One is on how Jesus uh dealt with with the people and then the there, there's a chapter on acts and it's making the point that you made and it shows how christians were not hostile to uh jews they were not hostiles to greek they were not hostile to the roman empire and they were not even hostile to to uh idolaters uh, you know in the way that they treated they didn't go around causing trouble the trouble always came from the other sources, and he actually makes a case in his book. Yeah, there you go. Uh, there's a, there's an earlier version of it. He makes he makes a case in this book in one of the chapters about apologetics in the book of Acts. So it's a it's a great it's it's really a good basic book on apologetics that deals with the very point that you're making there, Brian. So, anyways, y'all want more information? Email us. We'll get you. We'll get you information. Doy Moyer is the one that wrote that book for what it's worth. Yeah, and there is, a, like you said, a second revision of that out. That, yeah, yeah. And I think he pretty highly recommends trying to get the the second edition. Yeah, John, is yours the second edition? This here is the second edition. So no, I, mine is mine is mine's the original edition. Yeah, it's, yeah. There's nothing better than the original. Of course. <laughs> of course. No, mine. I, I used we, to have that until I loaned it to somebody. Yeah, we got ours. This is 2010 is the copyright date. We got it about maybe seven years ago. Yeah, exactly. But 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 that's a good basic book dealing with some of these apologetics things. And I like the way it deals with acts and and everything that Brian just said. That that's the type of stuff he brings out in that chapter dealing with that. And, and it's a point when you're going through the book of Acts, you see it as proof that we're not we're not trying to cause trouble. We're just trying to win souls. 
And just like that's rejected today is the same way it was rejected back then. So you anyway, know, often as Christians, just to add on this thought, I know we're out of time and, and kind of wasting it, but uh, just to add to this thought, we as Christians don't often appreciate how incredible the Bible is as a book. But if you sit down and read a book like the Book of Mormon and you and you see within a few, you know, you're not reading very long before the concept of the absence of falsifiability, uh, a lack of details that you could actually pin down and say, this fits to that, or details that are proven to be false because they are presented like that, you realize, boy, the Bible is really pretty fantastic compared to anything else out there. There's just right. nothing like it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, uh, let's go ahead and get this wrapped up because, like I said, we are running out of time. Let's get back to the chat room question here. Uh, uh, John, you got that? You know, yes. what is significant? What is significant about the term assembly as it is found in this text? I think Gregor made a comment about that. He says, now this is his guess, the representative of the people of the city. Ephesus seems to be following the Greek Republic structure. That would have been the local representation of the citizens. Yeah, exactly. And obviously that's a definition of the word. It, does anybody have any other thoughts associated? With, and, and that's certainly truthful to the question. Uh, any other thoughts about the word assembly that is used here? Like, say, going back into the original Greek? Ecclesia? It is the word ecclesia. The, the called out. You know, yeah, the called out. This is the word that is most often translated church in the New Testament. And of course, I know there's a lot of debate about what the church is and so on. Church local, church universal, and we won't go into that. Don't have time right now. But but it's kind of interesting that here is the usage of the word ecclesia three times in a secular sense, which shows that it was originally a secular word. And basically what it's describing when we talk about it spiritually, and I appreciate the fact that the Bible, that our English Bibles make a distinction between its being used in a secular sense in this passage here and when it's used to describe the assembling of God's people in one way or another, which is associated with the definition of that word as church. Anyways, I, I thought that was interesting about that particular word. Tom, you can also connect that with Peter's statement that we are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, it's right. the idea of us being called out of something. And you're right, the context would be different, whether we're talking about the church as his body, called out of sin, or the local assembly of the saints who are called out together. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and the same word ecclesia is used to, to describe the term church, whether you're talking local or universal. And like yeah. I said, that's a whole nother discussion, and uh, we can maybe deal with that another time. But anyways, uh, that's just interesting about this text. And basically with that, I'm done with my chapter, so I'm going to turn it back over to you, Paul, or John. <laughs> He's turned it over to me. All right. Hey, look, it's John Paul. John Paul. There you go. <laughs> the third? Well, <laughs> anyway. Sorry. Tom, thank you so much for leading us through the study of Acts chapter 19. Really appreciate that and the job that you did with that. Hey, Brian, I wonder if you can answer a question for me. Do we have any international listeners? Well, we recently found out that we do have some listeners in Northern Ireland, and we're so very glad that you tuned in with us and uh, listened in. And we're uh, appreciative of your support by listening in. We hope you find our resources so very useful. Do we kind of look the same now, you and I? <laughs> yeah, you know, the problem is I start to lean back in my chair and go down and down. That's one, well, that's one of my problems. I get cheap chairs. I buy these cheap Goodwill chairs, and they're already broken when I get them. So. They don't show you Goodwill, do they? Yeah, no, they don't. What 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 we're referring to here? Brian's son Grant um, prepares a podcast for us um, from our study, and he makes the podcast available. If you go to truthfactor dot com on the front page, you'll see um, the the playlist um, of the various episodes since Grant started doing this. And so, I'm assuming you can uh, do an um, subscribe to that through your favorite podcast player and so forth. And and so uh, Brian was telling us in our private chat that we actually have a listener in Ireland? Northern Ireland, that's correct. 
Northern Ireland. Very, very good. I think we know that I there know. are brethren up in Northern Ireland. So we're, uh, uh, like I said, hope, uh, but we're glad for anybody who listens. So. Well, I think it may be a, a, a lady by the name of uh, Angela. Oh, you might know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And um, if so, we'll we'll do a little shout out. And yeah, um, anytime you'd like to, um, you know, we, we encourage you to tell others about it. And if you if you find the study useful, and if you can ever join us live, please do that as well. All righty. Well, let's go ahead and pull the study to a close. Next week we will be looking at Acts chapter twenty, and Mike Davis is scheduled to lead us through that study. And he is available. Um, it had some personal things going on that he had to do some scheduling for. Was kind of fearful that he may not be able to be here, but he may, he will be here for Acts chapter 20. Um, I always enjoy it when Mike leads the study. I kind of feel like I'm a student in a class, the way he prepares the outlines and we walk through it. So it's very, very beneficial. But that'll be next Wednesday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time. In the Eastern United States, it's at noon 9 a.m pacific time 10 a.m mountain time that's right here at live.truthfactor.com have a wonderful week